0: Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Library, and if you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. I just realized I am getting weird reflections here. I have yet to put up the curtain that I bought to make sure I don't have these weird stripy lights on my face. But here we are, and I will deal with it. We are rounding out our journey through communism with the Pol Pot regime. Race, power, and genocide in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, 1975-1979, to by Ben Kiernan. It's a treat. The accompanying cocktail is called Asylum. I picked that one because basically I wanted to do something just to remind us it's not all about the murder, sometimes it's about the survival, and this is for the people who sought sanctuary from their neighbors trying to escape this murderous band of madmen. Asylum is one ounce of dry gin, one ounce of anise liquor, a sixth ounce of grenadine, and a third ounce of chilled water. So let's do this. First off, starting with the gin, this book is a detailed overview of the regime as a whole, not a biography of any one member of the regime. Uh, Pol Pot is recognized as a leader of the regime. His adopted name Pol Pot actually means brother number one. Pol Pot was born Salazar on May 19, 1925 and like so very many communists before him he was raised in a comfortable middle class family. I mean his father was nominally a peasant but he owned 12,000 hectares of land which is a lot of freaking land no matter how you cut it and Unlike many communists before him, his family was royalty adjacent. One of his sisters was a royal consort, and a brother of his was a palace protocol officer. So it's not like he was born, you know, poor or anything like that. He grew up quite comfortable. But as Margaret Thatcher, I think it was Margaret Thatcher, famously said, "You know, socialism is the the creed of jealousy or something like that." You know what? I'm gonna scratch that. I'm gonna look that up. Maybe it was Winston Churchill. Some Brit somewhere said something about socialism being like the creed of jealousy and, you know, hate the man who's better off than you. And that's basically what he did is he hated everybody who was better off than him. So the entire leading cadre of the regime, you have Pol Pot, Q. Sampan, Yang Seri, San senator all met and studied together at the Sorbonne in Paris. Uh, That's right, these poor communists were all foreign exchange students to France in the late 1940s and early 1950s before returning to Cambodia and plotting their eventual takeover. Now the actual events that led to the takeover are not discussed so much in the book, Uh, not in much detail, there's a little bit of a background you kind of need it. Uh, But the primary focus of the book was the four years that the Khmer Rouge was in charge of Cambodia. Broadly, what happened is that the war in Vietnam had the Cambodian side of the border, which here's a little map of what that looks like, was bombed extensively as well because the Vietnamese would hop the border to escape the bombs. And so the bombs followed them across the border. It is what it is, right? The U.S. bombing runs were used as propaganda by the regime to initially garner support for them with the people in the countryside. Makes sense, right? You have a wonderful propaganda built in right there. Hey, look, the American imperialists are bombing the shit out of us. What did we do? Why don't you unite under our banner and we will protect you from the American imperialist bastards. Makes perfect sense. It's a solid propaganda point. I get it. A six ounce is about a teaspoon, so I'm just going to use a teaspoon. Tiny little bit of of grenadine. Before the official 1975 takeover, they were propagandizing the Cambodian countryside with see how evil the U.S. imperialists are. They're bombing our brothers in Vietnam and us too. What did we ever do to them? And as part of this, they initially worked with the royal family against the opposing political side who was the Lon Nal and his people. Uh, Lan Nal had deposed the king when the king was out of the country. And as Lan Nal and his followers were acknowledged to be right of Mao Zedong, the Chinese, of course, recommended that the king side with the Khmer Rouge, who would restore him to the throne. Um, Spoiler alert, they did not restore him to the throne. The king did initially back the Khmer Rouge, who did succeed in defeating Lan Nal and his cadre over several years, with Vietnam backing the Khmer Rouge and the U.S. backing Lan Nal because politics makes strange bedfellows. And during these years of civil war, the Khmer Rouge were more or less decent to the people of the country, who they referred to as quote-unquote base people, which more or less just means country peasant class. Uh, this designation becomes very important later, as things progress, you know, shittily down the road. It's going to be just a hair under a fifth or half a fluid ounce. It's probably a little more water than it needs, but that's okay, i will water down the anise, which I don't like. Once the Civil War was over, the Khmer Rouge turned to the king and were like, hey, that whole deposed thing Lon Nal, Long Nal did, we're going to make that permanent. So bye-bye. And then they proceeded to drain the cities. And what I mean by that is like every major population center starting with the capital of Phnom Penh, they made all the residents leave. Not for any particular reason, just to drain the cities and get them all out of there. And while they were draining the cities, they created a new state called the Democrat Kampuchea. Uh, which is Cambodia, basically. And at this time in history, Cambodia had a reverse Pareto distribution. Now, in most regions, countries, health, states, 80% of the population live in 20% of the cities. And and this is like a a natural law. It just happens. People gravitate towards population centers. I'm going to stir this up really quick. Cambodia, that natural law was inverted. 80% of the population were rural, farmers, fishermen, peasant class. The Khmer Rouge forced the city people to go to leave the cities and go to the country and on their way out they started asking them what did you do what was your job were you a banker were you a businessman were you wealthy in any way shape or form did you work for support or know anybody who was part of the law and regime and the executions began now they didn't just execute the person they basically what like pruned family trees back very harshly they so it wasn't just you know, the Lon Null fighter, it was his wife, mother, brother, sister, all of his children, grandparents, entire family units wiped out as part of these exterminations. Uh, if you were intellectual, sometimes only being determined to be such because you were wearing glasses, you were executed. Uh, one former teacher survived because she had the good God common sense to lie about her profession. She saw what was going on and was like, well, I'm not going to tell him what I did. And so when they asked her, were you a teacher? She said, no, I was a fruit seller in Phnom Penh. And they're like, I don't know, man, you look kind of pale to have been a fruit seller. Shouldn't your skin be a bit darker if you were outside all day? And she said, nah, I lived in the shade. My, my, uh, my fruit seller stand was in the shade. And so no, I wasn't in the sun. And additionally, I supplemented my income by cleaning house for a rich Chinese person. And they're like, oh, okay, you're, you're fine then go ahead and go. Because the Chinese were to be hated and persecuted as much as the Vietnamese and the other classes. It just, the whole thing was just awful. So, during this forced evacuation, some people escape just by running into the jungle and across the nearest border because they're smart. They don't want to die. They suspect bad things are coming. Why else are they being forced to evacuate when bombs are no longer falling from the sky? Some survived by playing dead. There was a, a, at least one anecdote, you know, two anecdotes of people who were shot at as part of a greater mass execution and were missed, but they played dead anyways, crawling out of the body pits when night fell. It's charming, right? See, I don't like anise. It's not bad, though. The grenadine definitely adds a sweet flavor to it, but I just don't like anise. It's It's just not for me. Anise, anise, however you pronounce it. It's not bad, though. I'll drink more of it. Once they relocated to the country, the new people versus the base people, so these are your two classes now. You've got the base and the new people. Uh, were forced to pick or plant rice all day long with ever decreasing rations now they started out with almost enough food but through having to meet export obligations to Japan and the Khmer Rouge wanting to make sure that the regime itself didn't starve by the end of the four years a group of 10 people might have to share a half a can of rice per day (laughs) so you get like a tablespoon like a mouthful of rice and that's your food for the day Uh, The survivors agree there wasn't much famine at the end of year one, but by the end of year two, everyone was hungry, and by the year of N three, death by starvation was not an uncommon thing. Um, Year one, if you met your work quota for the day, you might be allowed to forage for extra food in the surrounding jungle. By end of year two, that permission was universally revoked, and no one was allowed to forage. You, You had to eat what the regime provided you. Everyone who could jump ship did. Uh, there was a mass exodus across the borders into Thailand, Laos, Vietnam. The eastern region of the country, right up next to the Vietnamese border, was the hardest to suppress for the regime. Uh, that area had been hardest hit with U.S. bombing raids because it was right next to the Vietnamese border. And those Cambodians truly got on well with the Vietnamese. They were like, hey, these are our brother-in-arms, man. We were bombed just as bad as they were. Uh, when the regime ultimately decided that it was stable enough to start conquering enemy territory, they attacked Vietnam first. Uh, when Vietnam Counterattacked. you know they, they made their own incursion in and then withdrew back to the across the vietnamese border over a hundred thousand cambodians were like N- we're going with you we, we identify as vietnamese now we are no longer cambodians which they didn't actually renounce citizenship they just wanted to get the hell away from the khmer rouge so it's kind of a wait take me with you and uh they left because it was a hell of a good time right the vietnamese are already withdrawing the vietnamese suspect something bad's going on and didn't turn them back at the border. In fact, the Vietnamese actually set up refugee camps in Vietnam for the Cambodian survivors. Cambodia was by no means a rich country, right? I mean, 80% of the population lived in the country and were peasants, mostly poor peasants. When the regime was leveling the playing field, if a family had two oxen to everyone else's one oxen, then that family was rich, comparatively speaking, and uh, would likely be exterminated. There was definitely a racist element to the extermination. One of the single largest non-Cambodian populations hit was the Cam population. I'm probably mispronouncing it. It's it's C-H-A-M. The the Cam population were Muslims who had been living... They'd been living in Cambodia for thousands of years. I mean, like, from the 3rd or 4th century on, they'd been living in Cambodia. They are, in fact, Cambodian. They just practice a different religion, being Islam, not Buddhism, which was what the rest of the population practiced. It's kind of growing on. You can still taste the anise, but the grenadine does fla- like temper it out a little bit. The flavor the of Islam that they had adopted included elements of the Buddhist religion because thousands of years, you're going to incorporate a little bit, right? But one of the things they retained from their original Islam was the prohibition against eating pork. So the Khmer Rouge made pork a requirement of the cam diet. And only of the cam diet. Everyone else in a village might have a selection to go with their gruel. If the Cam refused to eat the pork, they were executed. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts. They were exterminated right then. Uh, refusal to do anything, whether you were base or a new person, Cam, Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, it would get you executed. So would complaining about anything. Right? Nice. Nice. And this poor country got only poorer under the, under the uh, Khmer Rouge because in order to pay for the armaments that they got from China, and China sent them millions of dollars in arms to fight their insurrections. They exported huge swaths of the local ecosystems, basically wiping out their teak forests. Now, somebody who uh, I I have done woodworking in the past, teak is exceptionally rare. Currently, it's only grown in abundance in Burma, (laughs) because everybody else, including Cambodia, wiped out their own stocks of teak forests. And this is like a slow growth wood. So it's rare, hard to get, really expensive, partly because of this. They wiped out, they decimated their tiger population, their pangolin population, geckos, everything that was included, all this um, animal life that was part of traditional Chinese medicine, wiped out to a large extent and imported to China to pay for these arms. So the, the, the Khmer Rouge decimated the natural ecology of Cambodia in order to pursue their regime. The prison at Tulslang, which is a, a, the S-21 camp, made it run by the infamous comrade Dutch, a.k.a. Kang Guk Eve. I'm really sure I'm mispronouncing that one. Uh, this is best known for the horrors and excesses of the Khmer Rouge, and I get it, right? It, 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 at, at, during the four years that... The Khmer Rouge was in charge, 21,000 inmates were imprisoned there, and only seven survived. The rest of them were murdered. So that's a death rate of 99.96%. So I get why that's famous. Plus, a lot of records were left behind, and I'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, The vast majority of the genocide occurred in the countryside, where the Khmer Rouge troopers in charge of overseeing production basically had carte blanche from the regime to do whatever they liked to ensure that the work got done. And mostly that just meant killing anybody who disagreed or did, didn't do exactly what, what they were told when they were told. Part of the reason we know so very much about what happened in Cambodia from 75 to 79 is the survivor stories. Uh, they were not at all afraid or ashamed to tell their tale to willing years. And then the records that were left behind by the regime itself. See, when Vietnam got sick of Cambodia's shit and invaded the regime panic-fled, leaving behind detailed records of everything they did. Detailed records of how they tracked which families were involved with the law Nall, and, and which ones were intellectuals, and which ones were bankers, and which ones had been in prison at Tulslang. One such record was a notebook found at a house near Tulslang Prison. It has such charming notes as, Human Experiments, and begins with, One, A 17-year-old girl with her throat cut and stomach slashed put in water from 7.55 p.m. until 9.20 a.m. when the body begins to float slowly to the top, which it reaches by 11 a.m. No idea what they were experimenting. 17-year-old girl. Two, a 17-year-old girl, bashed to death, then put in the water as before for the same period. But the body rises to the top by 1.17 p.m. I don't know, maybe they're studying how long it takes a dead body to rise to the top, under what circumstances. Uh, ben Ciaranan notes quote, similar details were recorded for a big woman stabbed in the throat, her stomach slashed and removed, and a young male bashed to death. Then four young girls stabbed in the throat. And finally, a young girl still alive, hands tied, placed in water. All of this was in a notebook found outside the Toll Slang prison, uh, probably used against Comrade Dutch later. Uh, the killings in the countryside are, to a degree, extrapolated data based on known population count prior to 75 and known population counts after 1979. A lot of it is extrapolated from interviews with hundreds of survivors, detailed accounts of entire families that were wiped out. Uh, there's at least one Cam village of 500 where there was only one survivor, uh, and that one survived because he ran away, I think, to Thailand, seeking asylum. Yeah. We will probably never actually know the death count of the Cambodian genocide under Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. It's estimated between 1.6 and 1.7 million dead in just four years. I dare say the only reason that it didn't reach a higher number is that the Khmer Rouge lacked the machinery to fully mechanize death the way the Nazis did in Germany. If he'd have thought about it, he might have gotten that information from. China. It it would have been the... because Mao Zedong died in what, 76? So it would have been his Deng Xiaoping, I think, was was the successor? Yeah, I think that's right. So January 6th, 1970, the Cambodians invaded Vietnam. Pol Pot was using arithmetic to justify the invasion, pointing out how if each Cambodian soldier killed 30 Vietnamese, they could take the whole country in just a few months. What he did not factor in to his arithmetic was that the Vietnamese would probably fight back. And that, having just fought a 20-year-long conflict of their own with global superpowers, the Vietnamese had become quite skilled in warfare themselves. The Vietnamese gave them one chance at peace, said basically, look, we don't want to fight you. We just we just got out of this big war with the USA. We just want to get down to the business of getting our own house in order why don't you stay on your side of the border, we'll stay on our side of the borders, and we'll just just be neighbors. You don't have to be good neighbors, we'll just be neighbors. And Pol Pot was like, no, I'm not interested in that. And he took that offer of peace as proof positive that they lacked the fighting spirit and would be easy to subdue. And exactly one year later, on January 6, 1979, Vietnam decided they were sick of Cambodia's shit and invaded the country. And not just the excursion across the Mekong Delta that they had initially done, full-on invasion, and the regime fled. Some of them were eventually tried by the UN for war crimes. The war crimes was mentioned in the preface to the book. I had to Google search the following bit. Uh, The book itself ended with the estimated final body count and the conclusion that quite a bit of the genocide was racially motivated. But I needed closure, so I Google searched the following. Um, Those records that had been left behind, a lot of that was used for some of what comes up here. So, Pol Pot was not tried by the UN due to he died in 1998. So, 20 years after the fact, 19 years after the fact, uh, he was tried by the remaining Khmer Rouge. So my, 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 how to turn tables, right? This was due to having ordered the death of fellow leader uh, Sun Sen in june 1997 now sansen had been one of the main guys and had been a loyal compatriot for 20 years but he determined pol pot determined that he that sansen had begun working with the khmer rouge to overthrow him so he took some of his people and said yeah kill that guy this made the remaining cadre members nervous and so they acted first placing pol pot under arrest and sentencing him to life in prison in july of 1997. Uh, Pol Pot died April 15, 1998, in his sleep of a heart attack. Now, one journalist, Nate Thayer, who was present for all of this, having been granted permission to interview and follow Pol Pot, believes that Pol Pot ingested poison due to the rumor that the Khmer Rouge were going to hand him over to the United States. But the official cause of death is heart attack. Now, the chairman of the state under the regime was Keo Sampan, According to Cambodian custom, the last name is first, then the first name. So Kyo is his last name. Sampan is the first name. Uh, Just for clarification. In 2007, Sampan wrote a book to get his side of the story out there. Uh, It is, the author assures us in the preface, a self-serving piece of garbage. Uh, Basically saying, yes, I was the chairman of the state, but I was not the one in charge. It was all Pol Pot, who by this time has been dead for, what, nine years. So, you can't really blame me. I was just the head of the the chairman of the state. I didn't actually do anything. I didn't make anybody kill anybody. November 13, 2007, Sampan had a stroke. After being released from the hospital, he was immediately arrested by a Cambodian tribunal and charged with crimes against humanity and war crimes. In April 2008, he appeared at the Cambodian Genocide Tribunal. Now, I am not sure how fast the court system works in Cambodia but it's not fast because that was 2008 he was not found guilty until August 7th 2014 for crimes against humanity the genocide charges were a separate trial he was found guilty there as well on November 16 2018 for the crime of genocide against the Vietnamese people uh, they were as mistreated as the Muslim camp population the Cambodians the Chinese he is currently serving life in prison Ayang Seri was the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was arrested on November 12, 2007, along with his wife, Ayang Tirith. He was charged on December 16, 2009, died March 14, 2013, at the age of 87, before the case against him could be brought to verdict. His wife, Ayang Tareth, was the Minister of Social Affairs under the regime. She was found mentally unfit to stand trial on December 13, 2011, and died on August 22, 2015. Now, Sun Sen was the Minister of National, National Defense. As stated above, he was murdered on Pol Pot's orders on June 15, 1997. And true to all regime actions in the past, 13 members of his family who happened to be with him at the time were also executed. Comrade Dutch, the guy who ran tall slang, hid from everyone for 20 years. Uh, He even at one point worked at an American aid camp for refugees, isn't that interesting, before being tracked down to a remote region of Cambodia by a journalist. He did publicly ask for forgiveness before being tried, and was serving life in prison for war crimes and crimes against humanity when he was found dead in his cell on September second, 2020. This book was not the easiest to read, and not just because of the horrifying subject matter. The the author was seeking not just to tell the story, but to correct a record that had been written and published by Michael Vickery while telling the true story of what happened. So there were quite a lot of threads that he was weaving together into a cohesive tale of tragedy. Now, I haven't read Vickery's account, uh, but what the author was saying, uh, Ben Kiernan was saying, is that Vickery tried to say it was not the communist ideal that had failed, that the Khmer Rouge was not that bad, at least as that's what's indicated in Kiernan's telling of it. That's Vickery's account. Um, but Vickery tries to say the peasant class was in full support of the rebellion, and they were the ones actually responsible for the killing, because the new people versus the base people were the capitalist scum the peasants had spontaneously risen up against. Uh, Kiernan does an excellent job refuting those ideas, by the way. He's like, no, that's all. All right. My words, basically summing up, he says, that's all bullshit, and here's why. Now... As you learn at the very end of the book, Kiernan did have personal reasons for doing so. He, he had spent some time in Cambodia, before all the uprising, obviously, and he had friends in Cambodia. Uh, none of his friends or family survived the regime, and this was eventually came out due to a friend of his, Professor Malcolm Caldwell of London University, who, along with Richard Dudman and of the St. Louis Post Dispatch and Elizabeth Becker of the Washington Post, were given permission by the regime to visit Cambodia and report on it in October of 1978. So Kiernan was contacted by Caldwell, and Caldwell said, Hey, I've been given this permission to go. I'm very excited. Anybody you need me to look up? I've got some Cambodian contacts here in, in London that I'm that I'm have asked me to look into people for them. Do you know anybody there? And Kiernan said, Yes. Can you please look into you know, my, my friends, and gave them a list of names. And it turned out that all of them were dead. And, and this never actually gets explicitly stated. We find out later from those well-kept records that they were executed. The entire trip was heavily curated by the Khmer Rouge, and any questions asked were sidestepped. Uh, we know this from uh, notebooks that Caldwell left, because while in Cambodia, Caldwell was shot and killed by gunmen who broke into the guest house they were all three staying at. So Cunin tears apart Vickery's contentions, that this was a peasant-supported uprising as the peasants did all the killing, and brings it back to the most interesting point and a moment where another piece of the puzzle of what's going on currently kind of falls into place for me. See, James Lindsay has reiterated over and over again on his podcast and his speeches that he gives that the ideologues are coming for the children to destroy the family unit. And this thought is relevant. Trust me, I promise. All right. Because, you see, the peasant class of Cambodia are smarter by far than any of the highly educated Western le- leftists sitting in their ivory towers and defending communism and pedophilic attempts at children. And here's why I say this. When the Khmer Rouge first took over, and even during the initial phases, stages of the famine, when, yes, necrophagy was practiced, the peasant class basically just went along to get along. Because, as has been true of peasant classes globally for thousands of years, It generally doesn't matter what the people in power are doing, right? They're at the very top. The peasant class just wants to be left alone, raise their family, have enough food on the table. And they can deal with less food on the table because, hey, droughts happen, famine happens, war happens. It sucks, but these are part of the life cycles that they can, to a degree, plan around, right? It's a miserable part of life, but you can plan for it. You can plan for it for a drought and the farmers know the signs of drought, so they know when to start putting extra food aside. They know how to farm their crops, they, they can handle pests, they know how to do these things. This is stuff that, that they are literally raised doing and learn the signs from the time they're you know, itty bitty. Um, they can even recognize the signs of war and turmoil as indicated by the multiples that ran across the border into Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam when all of this started going on. The family unit through all of this remains solid right? Until it wasn't. In 1976-1977, the Khmer Rouge tried to force collectivization on the rural villages, taking away family time in the villages. Family time was meal time, right? No matter what bad shit's going on out in the country, whether they're able to forage for food or not, whether they met their quota for the day or not. And understand the families came together and helped each other. And the Khmer Rouge was cool with that. They're like, okay, yeah, if, you know, this guy can't reach his full quota for the day, but his brother wants to come help him, fine. As long as we have, you know, our six cubic meters of earth moved between the two of you, don't give a shit. Have at it. And villages would help each other because essentially a village was an extended family because everybody knew each other. They'd all been growing up in the same area. They all knew each other. 76, 77, the Khmer Rouge tried to force collectivization on the rural villages, taking away that family time, forcing communal eating. Everybody knew each other. Everybody was friendly with each other. Oh, except that they had forced this merging between the new people and the base people, and now they didn't know all the new people, but they're being forced to share that food and family time with people they don't know. And the villages started to rebel against this. That's the point where they started to react. Sometimes they killed the Khmer Rouge commanders, other times they just packed their family and fled to the neighboring country as quick as they could. Uh, Because the peasant class is smart enough to know that your family is what connects you to life. And so they don't throw their children away in the name of political correctness or for the fear of being cancelled on social media. They give not two shits about social media, they want to raise their families or out of general indifference to the fact that they brought a life they are responsible into this world. And I say that because I've seen it happen far too often, where, yay, I had a baby! And then they just basically go back to staring at their phones and engaging on social media while leaving their kids alone. And so I say the peasants, who are looked down on by the intellectual elites in the West, are smarter by far than those so-called intellectuals, because the intellectuals are allowing this narrative to destroy their family units in the name of political correctness. Uh, overall, the book was good. Uh, it, it provided a broad overview of a very short period of time where true horror rained down on a country and bathed it in blood. The story is constructed from first-hand primary accounts of survivors who were interviewed directly by the author, uh, who learned Cambodian and conducted the interviews themselves. So there's no misunderstanding of what a translator is saying primary accounts are the best accounts from a historical research perspective, always have been. Um, but because he laid out what was happening in each region as it happened, it made the story a little disconnected. So for example, instead of breaking down and saying eastern region here, and we're in and th- and this section, we're going to talk about the northern region, he broke it down by in 1975, this was happening at this part of the country, and this was happening at this part of the country, and this was happening, this country, this was happening in this part of the country. And then 1976, same thing. So it made it a little disjointed and a little hard to follow. So uh, it was just a little hard to, to kind of track the whole story as it unfolds. But overall, it's a respectable telling of what happened to the Cambodian people during an absolutely awful four year period. And it's an important lesson to learn for all of those who are going along to get along because they don't want to be canceled on social media. All right, and I get it. All right, in the West, social media is super important. If you get canceled on Twitter, you could actually lose your job in real life. That that's a thing. All right, it's happened. But are you willing to sell your soul or your children's souls to maintain your connection to social media, which, as we all know, ain't that social because of. They win this war online, and cancel, they cancel you in real life, right? And I don't just mean losing your job. I mean, look at what happened in Cambodia. The Cambodians are aware of what it means to the core of their DNA, what it means to be canceled in real life, or at least the survivors are. And that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to wash our brains of all of this darkness by reading about Theodore Roosevelt, and I'll see you guys next Sunday. Bye.